From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the Centers for Disease Control, about half of all American adults, 117 million people, have one or more preventable chronic diseases, many of which are related to poor eating habits and physical inactivity. March is National Nutrition Month. We'll talk diet and exercise with the Mayo Clinic experts. In the weight loss research, the diet comes out on top. And so looking at having a healthy diet for weight loss is first and foremost. However, exercise seems to play an increasing role in weight maintenance. Also on the program, we'll learn about the importance of cancer survivorship programs. And we'll hear about the latest treatment options for plantar fasciitis. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Do you ever feel like you just can't keep up with the latest nutrition news because it seems like it's changing almost every day? Every day, yes. We got fad diets and a different one every week or every month and dietary supplements and confusing nutrition labels and all those things can make it difficult to know what's best when it comes to the food we eat. And that's just on a Monday. (laughs) Well, it's true that what we know about diet and nutrition is always evolving. There are some nutrition basics that can always help you sort through the latest research and advice. March is National Nutrition Month, an education and information campaign created by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics to help consumers make informed food choices and develop sound eating and physical activity habits. Here to discuss nutrition is Mayo Clinic dietitian Kate Zaraski. Kate, great to have you back. We want the straight scoop on everything we questioned at the beginning of the show. Well, thanks for having me back. No pressure at all. Just follow us around all the time and tell us what we should eat. I could do that, but it's uh, believe it or not, it doesn't have to be that difficult. I know there's a lot of confu- confusing messages, but really nutrition can be simple. All right, the theme this year is putting your best fork forward. Mm -hmm. Catchy title. Very catchy. And break it down for us. What does it mean? Sure. And this year, in align with the the dietary guidelines um, for Americans, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics is taking a campaign approach that looks at eating styles and recognizing that there's many different eating styles across many cultures that live here in the United States. And so we want people to embrace their culture and their traditions. However, within that, recognizing that there are nutritious food choices and maybe some choices that are better left for special occasions. No, I like the phrase eating style. That eating style. So recognizing that there isn't one right, right way to do it. There's many healthy eating styles. We often think of, well, there's different diets and fad diets, but really looking at sound eating patterns, such as the Mediterranean diet, the DASH diet, there's many healthy eating patterns out there. You know, I, I think uh, the nutrition experts, including yourself, um, have to have to face reality. I mean, you have to be sort of realistic about this. It's like the advice is eat five fruits and vegetables every day. Is there one day when you actually eat five? Well, maybe you do, but you know what? what is it? It's like 3% of the population actually does that. I right? got bad news for you, Shives. It's, a, it's more than five per day now, isn't it, Kate? Mm-hmm. Research, re- actually, research shows well, that of we're... of course. <laughs> yeah. Now we're down to 2% of the population. We're better served by actually getting more servings of fruits and vegetables, but you're right, Dr. Shives. There are very few 
people who meet those recommendations. And so looking at within your dietary pattern, are there simple ways that you can include more fruits, more vegetables into your meals or perhaps as snacks? I'd say if you have vegetables in your breakfast, those are the days that I can make a run at that 7 to 11 per day kind well, of yeah, thing. Well, yeah, but you sort of put them all in your Cuisinart and then put some honey oh, and sugar on the top. No, and then eat it, actually, you? I'm not talking about green smoothies. I'm actually talking about with eggs. I've got, you know, vegetables and some that are roasted from the night before leftover yeah, supper no. and put that with my eggs. Sure, make a frittata or a, a vegetable omelet. Boom, frittata, Dr. Okay, I, I like it. Uh, <laughs> what time do I come over? Oh, good, that's <laughs> yeah. good. Me and the kids before we go to school. All right, uh, what's another one of the messages for this year? And so looking at our food choices within within the many that we, we have, looking at nutrient-dense choices. And so the food choices, not only what we eat, but how much we eat, um, both matter. And when we eat more fruits and vegetables, it gives us, a, say, a freedom to eat larger quantities to satisfy our hunger. But within that, we also have the benefit of many nutrients because they are very nutrient-dense foods. Are there any supplements out there that you recommend that most people who are on a normal or fairly regular diet take? The research behind the multi, the use of multivitamins for people who eat a relatively healthy, balanced diet, there doesn't seem to be a great, strong need for an additional supplement. Um, the one case I could see is for certain populations, is seasonally with vitamin D. In the putting you be- your best fork forward, I like the second idea that's in here, which is practice cooking more at home. And I know that's been a message that we've heard over the years of, you know, sit down and eat with your family, cook at home together. And people must kind of be getting in line with cooking at home a little bit more, are they? Well, and let's hope so. Uh, not that eating out on occasion can't be okay, but when people eat out, even if they're trying to eat out and eat out in a healthy way, they tend to eat more calories, have more salt, um, and probably more saturated fats. So the more control we can take over the food that we put in our bodies by cooking it at home, we will likely have fewer calories, less saturated fat, less sodium, and potentially added sugar. Right. If you could have a frittata at your house, why would you go out anyway? Oh. Um, so uh, Why do you put up with us, Kate? <laughs> she keeps saying yes and coming back with us. <laughs> you know, when you see patients that are referred to you for dietary advice and you give them the dietary advice, how important is it that they combine that with an increased level of activity or exercise? Have you seen many people who can actually lose weight just by dieting, or is exercise a big component of it? I think they're both important. In the weight loss research, actually the diet kind of comes out on top. Does it? And so looking at having a healthy diet for weight loss is probably first and foremost. However, that's not to uh, imply that exercise isn't important because it is very much. Exercise seems to play an increasing role in weight maintenance. So once the weight is lost, keeping the weight off, make sure you're doing your exercise. Because it's true that uh, 90% of people uh, who went on a diet gained the weight back within, what, a year or 18 months or something? Yes, most people do. Weight maintenance is a very difficult um lifestyle to maintain. And so looking at ways of eating that maybe aren't 
drastic changes in what you're doing, but rather small and gradual changes, maybe adding that fruit at breakfast or adding vegetables to servings at dinner and gradually decreasing the portions of the other high-calorie foods might lead to a more sustainable type of diet and lifestyle changes for prolonged weight loss. And exercise is important when it comes to keeping it off. Exactly. All right, dietitian Kate Zeratsky from the Mayo Clinic. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the Mayo Clinic diet plan. It's a different kind of diet plan, and we'll see how successful it's been. Oh, and I've got some questions about the sugar challenge, too. (laughs) You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is a dietitian at the Mayo Clinic. She's been with us before. She's an expert on dieting and nutrition, Kate Zeratsky. She keeps coming back, as you said, <laughs> despite all the difficult questions. Despite how we just pepper her with this, we can't do it attitude. All right, listen, the um, the idea this year is to put your best fork forward. got to say it very carefully. So there's five messages this year, and we've kind of jumped around on some of them, but the first one is to create an eating style that includes healthy food, obviously. Um, cook at home more than eating out, and probably with healthier ingredients as part of that too, right? Right. All right, what else did we have? Oh, be physically active. Find activities that you enjoy so that you can be active most days of the week. That's three of the five. Yeah, and extremely important in keeping the weight off. And by the way, did we get her down to two fruits and vegetables a day? (laughs) No, that's you trying to do that, and she's not going to cave to you. Uh, Let's see. How much we eat is as important as what we eat. So let's talk about the My Plate, what My Plate encourages us to do. What is My Plate? Sure. My Plate is an icon that was uh, created by the government, actually, and it precedes that even. It's been around for many years. And what it is meant to depict is... Uh, a nine-inch plate. So that in and of itself creates a smaller real estate. you got to buy a smaller plate, Tom. <laughs> I guess so. That's, that's actually a pretty good idea. Yeah. And so studies show that if we eat off of a smaller plate, we can actually reduce our intake by 20% just by doing that. Hmm. Well, that's, no, that's that easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, why didn't you tell us that before? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the f- it's the fifth time you've been on it. Oh. That's a, such a great idea. Uh, speaking of five, the fifth tip for uh, putting your best fork forward is to manage your weight or lower your health risks by consulting a registered dietitian like yourself or nutritionist. Do you have a lot of people that just say, you know, that to call up or have their primary doctor refer them to you? Does that happen? It does. It does. And, and that's generally, I would think, how it happens in most communities is maybe it starts with a conversation with your primary care provider. And that from that conversation, you that you might deem that it may be beneficial for you to talk to someone who's a professional in nutrition. And that person can help you not only learn more about nutrition, but also probably give you some practical tips about how to. How do I do this in my own lifestyle? How do I do this day to day at home? What's the first thing, you know, when you show up a mon- on a Monday and you've got a new... Uh, patient that you're working with, what's the first thing that you start them off with? Nine-inch plate, is that it? That is one of them. <laughs> we, we, we often use that, my plate, and, and that is a very simple tool, not only because it helps control portions, but it also is very, it's a very visual tool as to what a healthy diet looks like. On half of the plate is fruits and vegetables, about a quarter of the plate is some protein-rich food, and the last quarter is a starchy or carbohydrate-rich food. Now, when someone comes to, to see you, um, is it normally, uh, is one visit enough, or 
do you follow up by email or do they come back and see you? How does that work? I, I mean, how many visits does it normally take times, to beat this into somebody's How many times do you have to see Dr. Shives? <laughs> That's right. Teach me how to eat right. And it really depends on the individual. Some people uh, are looking for education and um, and and once they have their education and they feel pretty confident about where they're going, one visit may be enough. Where other people uh, find that they do better with continued support and they may come back every four to six weeks or as it fits um, with their lifestyle and maybe their health plan. Do you uh, normally take a dietary history and listen to what they've been eating and you go, oh, no, no. <laughs> no, you don't She eat does that, not do roll her eyes and walk out of the room. <laughs> I do not. I do not. And, and that is actually very helpful. And, and to anyone out there that might be afraid to tell a dietitian. Um, to fess up. To, to yeah. fess up to what you eat, have have no have no worries about it. Um, like dietitians, maybe like other healthcare providers, we've probably heard it all, mm-hmm. um, and we'll do so without judgment. And so it's really if we can have an honest depiction of what you're doing, it gives us the best opportunity to really help you kind of tweak and make changes to what you to help you meet your goals. <laughs> you know, and the funny thing about it is, there's a lot of this that you know. I mean, how many times have we heard this? I can't even tell you the number of times that it's about 8 o'clock at night, the witching hour, I like to call it. That's haagen time. This, this is my, this is, and you know what I say? I'm walking upstairs and I say out loud, don't go into the kitchen. <laughs> and what do I end up with? Sugar is my problem. Can right. we talk about the sugar challenge? Sure. Sure. <laughs> So explain to us what it is. Sure. The sugar challenge is part of the Mayo Clinic (laughs) diet. It's part of what we call our lose-it phase, and it's really looking at dietary habits, kind of what we do, why we do what we do, which includes why you end up in the kitchen at 8 o'clock. But it's it's things within our environment, and it's things within our lifestyle, um, and the foods that we choose. And really looking at, uh, is there, with the sugar challenge, it's, bringing an awareness to the foods we eat and what's in them. But it's also a way to, say, learn to appreciate the natural sweetness in fruits and vegetables because many of the foods that we eat have a lot of added sugar or artificial sweeteners that are very, very sweet. And so our taste buds get accustomed to this super sweet taste, and we may forget how tasty strawberries and blueberries and even carrots could be. And it's pretty easy, actually, because there's just a few little parts to it. Uh, Break it down for us. One of them is the labels. Sure. So usually, first and foremost, um, the more, we call it real foods that you can eat, so foods that are going to come in their natural form, um, will be helpful during this challenge. But so you can have those nat- that natural sweetness. But when you're when anything comes out of a can of box, a package, look at that package and look at the amount of sugar. And if it has five grams or less of sugar, um, that's a pretty low sugar item. So Green that's a light. good choice. Five grams or less. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And five ingredients. And then look down at the ingredient yeah. list. And if you see sugar or a word that means sugar such as a syrup or anything that ends in ose <laughs> ose that's okay. a that's another Fruit indicator toes. that yeah. it's that it's a sugar and so comparing that those two it'll help you make that decision if this is a low, lower sugar containing item and one that you 
may or may not have on your sugar challenge. All right, so I'm trying the sugar challenge. I'm trying so hard. And then the kids say, have you looked at the milk? The milk jug. Milk has got more sugar in it than five grams. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, so that's so where it gets a little tricky. This is where I need your help. I called it off until I'm like, the next time that Kate Zaratsky is in, I'll ask her how to do this. So what do you do? Sure, so certain foods have natural sugars. And our current food labels, do um, most do not differentiate between natural and added sugar. And really what we're going after in the sugar challenge is the added sugar. And so it's really those ones that are on the ingredient list is the ones we would like to eliminate. milk is okay. So milk is okay. Any fruit sugar is okay. Yeah, because it came straight out of the cow. There's no added sugar. It's okay. You know what else? It's okay. You know what else I noticed when I'm all of a sudden staring at these food labels is that it'll say vitamin D, the percentage of your diet, salt, the percentage of your diet, but the sugar, it's no percentage of your diet. No, on the new food labels, it will be. It will be. Right. So on the when the new when the new food labels should be coming, and so you will start seeing. Add total sugar and then an added sugar, and the added sugar does now have a percent by it. And so you want to keep that uh, percent as low as you can. So, so we'll be horrified when we see how much of our diet the percent is, right? We may be. I think it'll be another <laughs> eye-opener. Uh, you know, Kate, there are uh, there are, uh, diets. They come and they go. They're, they're called fad diets. Most of them are workle- worthless. There is nobody else listening. So I want to know what you really think of the Mayo Clinic diet. I do think the Mayo Clinic diet is a is a good diet. And and the and I'll explain the reason why. I think because when you look at diets such as the Mediterranean diet, the DASH diet, um, other plant-based diets like the vegetarian diet, and there's been a fair amount of research on those types of diets and their health benefits. And when you compare those to the Mayo Clinic diet, they are very much in line. And so I think that with that correlation, that we can feel very good that this is a very sound and healthy diet for people. And it's been around for a while, and you've found it successful in, with regard to the patients and, and the people you've seen. Yes, and I work with both uh, Mayo Clinic patients and employees, and, and we use it in both populations and, and see people do quite well. Well, good to hear. Kate Zaratsky, dietitian, nutritionist, Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for coming back. Thank you. <laughs> Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about the Mayo Clinic Cancer Survivorship Program, and later on the show, we'll discuss a new treatment option for plantar fasciitis. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer, or maybe a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Can you be fit and fat at the same time and still be heart healthy? Yes, says Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. If you are normal weight, but you're out of shape, then your risk of heart attack is still pretty high. But if you are overweight, but you're physically fit, then your risk of heart attack goes down. Dr. Kopetsky is not giving you carte blanche to start overeating, but he's emphasizing the importance of physical activity and how exercise improves your heart health. What if you are a normal weight, but uh, you know, but you're you're not very fit? 
uh, you, you, you lose all the benefit of being normal weight by being out of shape. He says exercise, especially interval training, that's when you repeatedly go hard for 30 seconds or a minute and then rest, helps reduce blood pressure and triglycerides and helps keep your weight down. I try to tell patients, try to get more active physically. Because getting fit, no matter how much you weigh, will improve your heart health. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, believe it or not, there are now some 14 million Americans who are cancer survivors. Why? Why so many? Well, we're better at finding cancers, and we're better at detecting them early, and we've got better treatment, and we've got better treatment and more options. And because of that, people are living longer. Yay! Now, the term (laughs) cancer survivor, uh, actually, that figure includes anybody who has been diagnosed with cancer. Cancer and is still living. And it, it's just so good that there are 14 million Americans in that category. And, Miss Tracy, you're one of them. I sure am. Cancer survivors, however, face some unique challenges known as late effects of cancer or the treatment that comes along with it, the radiation, yeah, the sure. chemotherapy, for example. And that's especially true for pediatric cancer survivors who hopefully will live for years, maybe decades after their diagnosis and treatment. And guess what? We've got a program for people like that. Uh, And that's a good thing, because there are so many. (laughs) That's right. Here to discuss the Cancer Survivorship Programs at Mayo Clinic is oncologist Dr. Catherine Ruddy. Welcome to the program, Dr. Ruddy. It's nice to meet you. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Ruddy, nice to have you on the program. So, more cancer survivors than ever. Absolutely. Uh, Today, actually, our our most current numbers say that we have more than 15 million cancer survivors living in the U.S. And that so our statistics are out of date. That's right, There's that's another right. million. <laughs> that's yeah. wonderful. Good, good deal. And uh, you know this has really grown. So in 2002 we only had 10 million, and the projection is that by 2026, a decade from now, we'll have more than 20 million survivors. Unbelievable. How many uh, people of those 15 million have survived, let's say, more than one year, and how many survived more than than five years? Because often Sometimes we talk about cancer being cured at at the five year uh, time frame, um, and so how many of those fourteen million do you think have been living with cancer long enough that we can pretty much say they're cured? Well, so I think that that concept actually is a little bit different depending on what cancer you're talking about. So that is sort of in the common understanding of cancer survivorship, but for some cancers, that five year point is not really all that relevant, and um, actually. We're looking at longer time frames where we want, where we really do face a significant risk of recurrence later after five years. And then for others, really, if you get rid of the cancer, the chance that it's ever going to come back is so small that there's nothing magical about five years. And so, so I think, um, when someone is dealing with a specific cancer diagnosis, it's really important to talk to your own doctors about what kinds of time frames are most important to you. And, and it's, a little bit misleading to lump everybody together that way. Okay. So what are some of the late effects of cancer treatment? The drawbacks of being a cancer survivor, what does that mean? Yeah, well, absolutely. Our treatments certainly can have some side effects, both acute side effects and then long-term side effects, and then even some side effects that actually don't come up until years down the line that we think of as late side effects. Some of these are related to chemotherapies. Uh, we have some drugs that can cause heart problems, and you might not even know about that heart problem until five or ten years after you've received the drug. Um, things like radiation can have side effects, both skin changes, you know, discoloration of the skin that may never go away, um, but also the risk of 
secondary cancers that could um, pop up years down the road related to that treatment. So let's talk about the chemotherapy first. There, There is no drug that you can take that doesn't have some side effects. So you're saying that some of the drugs that you give to treat the cancer not only kill the cancer, but also have some detrimental effects, for example, on the heart muscle. Absolutely. You know, we wish we had drugs that didn't have side effects, obviously, and we try our best to minimize the side effects that patients experience. But um, these drugs can, certain drugs damage the nerves and can cause long-term numbness and tingling of the hands and feet. Others have the risk of long-term heart problems. Um, Some can damage the lungs. There, unfortunately, you're absolutely right. Every drug has some side effects. All right, radiation. Yeah, radiation is a known risk factor for cancer, um, particularly certain types of radiation. Patients who get, for example, mediastinal radiation for lymphoma are known to be at an increased risk of breast cancer. All right, and that's the center of the of the chest area. Exactly. Sternum, behind the sternum. Exactly. Any tissue that is inadvertently a recipient of radiation, when you're trying to target a given cancer, you end up, particularly with some of the older techniques for radiation, scattering radiation to other surrounding tissues, and then those tissues can be at increased risk of a cancer in the future. Which is why we love the proton beam so much. <laughs> exactly, because hopefully, <laughs> we haven't had that much experience with it, but hopefully the incidence of secondary cancers is less with proton beam. But our audience also needs to know but that the chances of that happening are very small. Very small, absolutely. This is is a very rare side effect, but obviously one that we are very concerned about and doing everything we can to minimize the risk of. So what strategies can we use to improve the quality of life for cancer survivors? I love the fact that this is something that is being studied and considered now. Absolutely. Um, There are a lot of things that we can do. One of the big things that I think helps a lot of people is exercise, and we're actually very proud that we helped bring the Live Strong program to the Rochester Y. This is a 12-week free exercise program to cancer survivors. Whether they were diagnosed yesterday or 20 years ago, um, they're eligible for this. And two 90-minute exercise sessions are group exercise classes. These are free. They come with a, a membership to the Rochester Y, and I, and I have had fantastic feedback from my patients that this is really, really helpful for managing those long-term side effects. A lot of the kind of fatigue that can last for a long time after treatment can be very well managed with exercise. You talked about uh, the, the long-term effects of radiation, but it's not just uh, secondary cancers, but also you can develop cancer in other organs. For example, if you've had radiation to your chest, are you at increased risk for breast cancer, for example? Yes. The side effects on the on the heart. There are certain drugs that are the most effective for treating cancers that also can increase your risk of, for what? Can heart failure or heart attack or or what does it actually do to the heart that's damaging? The drug that we have the most knowledge about is a drug called doxorubicin, or the other name for it is adriamycin. And the main risk from a cardiac standpoint with that drug is congestive heart failure. And it's a small risk, but it does happen. And we have cardio-oncologists here who are specialists in uh, figuring out how to manage that when it does occur. And congestive heart failure means that the heart just doesn't pump well enough to get the blood flowing throughout the body, and one of the symptoms might be swelling of your feet and ankles. Exactly, or difficulty breathing. Are you on an exercise program, Ms. Tracy? I just don't want to talk about it anymore. It's very hard for me. It really is hard for me, actually. I'm very emotional at this really? moment. It, it's um, Psychologically, it is wonderful and terrible to be in this camp. So explain a little bit about the psychological ramifications of it. Absolutely. The, you know, 
facing a potentially life-threatening diagnosis is incredibly difficult, incredibly stressful, causes a lot of distress in, in most of our patients. And um, in some patients, that even gets to the point of depression. Our psychologists and psychiatrists are incredibly helpful. And I encourage all of my patients, actually, if, if they're willing to see someone to talk about what they're going through psychologically. The fear of recurrence that really lasts for a long time for many, many patients can be an ongoing problem. So it's not just during the treatment, but transitioning into the survivorship phase and then thereafter. And we need to help patients manage this as, as best we can. Our Cancer Education Center is a fantastic resource. They have phenomenal free educational materials, also classes, so that people can kind of see what works for them and whether that's art therapy or music therapy or yoga or mindfulness meditation can access those uh, those resources. So we, the I was side just effects gonna, really never go away, huh, Tracy? I mean, you're how many years no. since well, your cancer? Well, they told me to start watching for the heart effects 18 to 20 years after the treatment. So no. I'm at 28 years now. And you know psychologically, <laughs> you never forget it, do you? I mean, it... it <laughs> Oh, if people yeah. want to know more about the Cancer Survivor <laughs> Program at Mayo Clinic, I am so happy that you're there to help them. And we are on over 100 stations across the country. So how can they learn more? Well, um, we are working to get more of our resources virtual, actually. We, we really want to be able to reach more people, not just people who can actually make it here to Rochester regularly, but um, we want to get our materials online. And um, so that's a that's in process and, and uh, working with our IT group to, to do that. Um, certainly anyone who's here in Rochester, stopping into the Cancer Education Center is probably the best way to do that. We also have the Dan Abraham Healthy Living Program, and they have some great um, classes, low-cost classes that people can access and, and if you're in Rochester that's a that's a fantastic resource um, but but I certainly would say Cancer Education Center which is just the lobby level of the Gonda building if you're in Rochester that's a wonderful place to start and what a great program the Cancer Survivorship Program Dr. Catherine Ruddy thanks so much for being with us thank you so much for having me we'll take a short break when we come back we'll learn about the latest treatment options for plantar fasciitis Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Have you ever had pain in your heel that it seems to last forever and it, it makes it hard to walk? And it's usually in the front of your heel and it's usually worst when you get up in the morning or you take the first few steps. You ever had it? No, I have not, but I am, I do know people who have. Well, and you know what the likely diagnosis is? Well, it's called plantar fasciitis. It's an inflammation of the fibrous tissue that is on the sole of your foot that can connects the heel bone down to the, the toes. The problem with it is it's hard to treat, and some patients uh, get some relief from physical therapy. Some uh, get a little relief from inserts in their shoes or what's called a heel cup or a heel pad. Night splints sometimes, uh, inflammatory, anti-inflammatory medication, or sometimes in an injection. Can you imagine an injection in the heel? Not much fun. But sometimes none of it works. Exactly. Are you kidding me? Oh. <laughs> well, there's good news for people who have been suffering from plantar fasciitis for a long time and can get relief no matter what they try. It's a minimally invasive treatment using ultrasonic energy. Presto! Yeah, ultrasound. (laughs) Here to discuss this new treatment option for plantar fasciitis is physical medicine and rehabilitation physician, Dr. Jay Smith. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Smith. Good to see you. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks, Tom. Dr. Jay Smith, you got the ticket for curing plantar fasciitis? Well, I'm not sure I have the ticket, but we certainly have a tool that wasn't available more than seven years ago that's really helped us help a lot of patients who've had refractory symptoms. So tell us how it works. 
So the idea of this particular device is that it uses ultrasound energy to vibrate a very small hollow tip needle and it emulsifies tissue in its pathway. So it basically turns the degenerated torn tissue to jelly and then it sucks it out. It's sort of like a power washer taking the paint off your wall. And we, per, we use this device under ultrasound through a very small incision, about two to three millimeters uh, incision in the skin. We move the device under ultrasound into the plantar fascia under local anesthesia. Uh, and once we activate the device, the needle moves back and forth and, and does its job. The whole procedure takes maybe a minute or two once we're going. Wait a minute. So you are taking it out? Mm-hmm. What, before you had this, how did people recover from plantar fasciitis? Well, many people, in fact, most people do recover spontaneously, but it can take a long time. Uh, many people have had symptoms for six months, 12 months or more. About 10 to 20% of people will have symptoms that just don't respond to the usual things like Tom had mentioned for treatments. Uh, and in those cases, surgery would be a consideration in which our surgical colleagues may cut part of the plantar fascia to relieve uh, the tension on the plantar fascia and the stress on it. Sometimes a piece of the plantar fascia would be removed. Uh, the idea behind the surgery is basically to try to get rid of the damaged tissue. Mm-hmm. Our job was, uh, or our task was to develop a way to do that through the skin without having to cut down to it. So to basically simulate the surgical procedure uh, without having to do the surgery itself per se. It's interesting, isn't it, that removing the damaged tissue relieves the pain? Yeah, I, I, you know, admittedly, in many cases, we're not sure exactly you know, where the pain is coming from. You know, despite all the tendonitis and fasciitis and all the other itises we have in the body, mm-hmm. um, many times we're not sure exactly where the pain is coming from. But certainly, taking the damaged tissue out does seem to correlate with improving people's pain. Uh, so that's been the traditional target. Uh, and again, I equate it to taking off the old paint on a wall before you put new paint. If you take off, if you take out the bad tissue, this degenerated, inflamed tissue, your body then is stimulated to heal it the correct way. Now, you injured it at some time, whether it was a single event or over time, you injured the plantar fascia, it became inflamed, it tried to heal, but it didn't do the job, it couldn't do the job. So what it did was fill itself in with scar tissue, uh, and that scar tissue doesn't really do its job very well, and that's why it hurts when you try to do things. So you take out the bad tissue and take a step backward and then promote the normal healing, and that's how the process works. Um, is this a diagnosis that you can make uh, on clinical exam, or do you have to do another test to make sure you've got the right diagnosis before you do the procedure? Uh, almost always plantar fasciitis can be made as a clinical diagnosis. As you mentioned, people have heel pain. They have pain in the morning. It hurts right at the bottom of the heel. There are a few other conditions, certainly, that can mimic uh, plantar fasciitis. Um, some people will have stress fractures in their heel bones. Some people will just have inflammation of the fat pad, your shock absorber on the bottom of your foot. Um, but most often imaging is not needed to make uh, the diagnosis and initiate initial treatment. For our particular procedure, uh, we are using ultrasound to image the plantar fascia. We can see the plantar fascia very well under ultrasound. We can see how much it is damaged uh, and uh, make make a diagnosis that way without needing to resort to MRI. And, of course, we use that same ultrasound to do the procedure. Is the problem that... uh led you to have the plantar fasciitis in the first place? Is that likely to reoccur? 
Well, there is even a, though you've had it fixed with this. Yeah, it's a technique? very good question. The recurrence rates have not been particularly high with mm-hmm. the planner with the procedures. Uh, so we do feel that we're taking care of the problem. Part of it, of course, just like any surgery or surgical intervention, is to try to identify the risk factors and modify them. So if there's something about someone's biomechanics, or maybe they're carrying a little bit too much weight, or maybe they're not wearing the right size shoes, or uh, well, shock absorbing shoes, we'll, we will fix that as part of our treatment. We want to treat the whole patient and not just the plantar fascia. So that is an important part of what we do. So uh, why some people and not others? You mentioned uh, obesity as, as one of the risk factors. Are there others? So risk factors that have been documented, certainly uh, excessive body weight, because the more pressure you put on your heel, the more pounding it takes. Uh, sure. And uh, secondly, people who are on their feet more than 8 to 10 hours a day statistically have a little bit of a higher risk of plantar fasciitis. People who have tightness in their Achilles tendons um, and their plantar fascia will have more tendency to get plantar fasciitis because your plantar fascia is basically a shock absorber, and it recoils. When you step down, your plantar fascia elongates, and then it recoils. If it's too tight, and it doesn't work, um, then it may break down on you. So those are the primary risk factors for most people. One other quick question about it. You will often hear people say that they had an x-ray and they have a heel spur, but it's rarely the spur that's causing the pain, right? The spur is secondary to... The, the plantar fasciitis? Correct. It's a very, very uh, glad that you brought that up. The, the bone spur is just a secondary sign of the tension in the area. The pain is not usually coming from the bone spur, almost never coming from the bone spur. There are, there are certainly cases where the bone spur can fracture, but they're very, very rare. Uh, the important thing is that the bone spur doesn't need to be taken out for someone to have clinical relief, and that's the important point to make. And how was Mayo Clinic involved in the development of this procedure? Uh, well, my partner, uh, Dr. Barnes, who's a family medicine, sports medicine practitioner, practitioner in Austin in the Mayo Health System and I, uh, as well as some other colleagues, uh, developed the technology. We adopted it from some pre-existing technology in the ophthalmology world, uh, a process called phacoemulsification, and they use similar technology, believe it or not, to take cataracts out of an eyeball, and we felt that if you could stick it in an eye, you could probably stick it in the plantar fascia. <laughs> so uh, through through Mayo's uh, assistance, uh, we, we modified the technology and developed it for this purpose. Wow. Well, since the last time you were on this program, Dr. Smith, we are on over 140 radio stations. Oh my goodness, yeah. So uh, you are throwing a wide net out yeah. there. And people who are suffering from plantar fasciitis are probably thinking, what, what? Right, so right. is this? Uh, are there other physicians across the country that are interested in what you're learning? Yeah, there are several hundred physicians over, across the country that perform this procedure, which is called different names, but uh, most people call it a percutaneous ultrasonic fasciotomy. Uh, the company uh, that uh, markets the, vi- the device is called Tenex. T-E-N-E-X, uh, and uh, you, would, you would be able to ask your practitioner if they're familiar with that procedure. How many have you done? Uh, probably 200 by now, uh, and uh, certainly there are people that are doing more volumes than that, but you know, most of our practitioners across the country, most of my colleagues who are doing it have done several hundred. Uh, there have been over 40,000 procedures done nationally. Of course, not all those are for plantar fascia. This device is also used for tendonitis, so it's used in the Achilles tendon. It's used for tennis elbow and now rotator cuff disease. So when you consider all the procedures that have been done, over 40,000 have been done in the United States. All right, so percutaneous ultrasound fasciotomy. Yep. You, you want the puff procedure. The puff procedure, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. a good one. <laughs> Copyright that, right? So. All right, rehabilitation specialist Dr. Jay Smith, thanks so much for telling us about the new treatment for plantar fasci- recalcitrant yep. plantar fasciitis. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. 
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.